Guten Tag, and welcome to another quality content module freshly ground by Small Beans, where ideas are always percolating. If you enjoy this pod, please consider joining our community over at patreon.com slash smallbeans, where only three bucks a month gets you access to double the content, including Patreon-exclusive series like Spielboys and Star Trek The Next Futurama, plus bonus episodes of your SB favorites. Much love, and enjoy the thing. Hello, and welcome back to Tales from the Pit. I'm your intrepid host, Michael Swaim, and this is your trigger warning. In today's episode, my guest Vanessa Guerrero and I discuss our worst days ever, a conversation that touches on depression, anxiety, heartbreak, PTSD, self-loathing, and suicide. On the bright side, we also talk about how to deal with those things. We don't just say sad stuff, and then roll credits. We're not Darren Aronofsky. But before the interview, a new short story. Inspired by my favorite author Harlan Ellison, I've decided to do away with any mystery and explain it up front. This story is about parts work and about learning to be kind to yourself in the midst of great suffering, not by resisting your inner abuser, but by sitting with it, being present with it, and ultimately taming it. The monk is you, the child is hope, the robber is your self-loathing, and the seasons are the seasons. They pass in glory, whether we bear witness or not. This story is called Two Graves. Someone dies in it. Once, long ago, very near here, a monk and her child lived by a quick-moving stream among fields of wildflower. The hills there browned, frosted, budded, and bloomed season by season. The river flowed on to a faraway place where it became the ocean. The hills flowed on to a faraway place where they became mountains that stood flat against the horizon. The child also grew, and the wise monk taught him everything she knew. She hoped not only to teach him to accept his life as it came to him, but in some way to become a part of him and to flow on herself to become the ocean. I call her Monk because she grew her own melons, gourds, and tomatoes, and greeted the sunrise with humility, and learned what she could from her miseries, and worked many years to master her own thoughts and emotions, even though no one told her to. No one ordained her. No one needed to. Soon, the child was a young man, and began to roam further and further from home. Do not ask me how he came to be thus, The pebble is carried by the stream, and the stream moves quickly. The child was roving, chasing the sun over a frosted hilltop, when a desperate man attacked and killed him. The man was hoping to steal food or money from the boy, but he carried neither. Later, by sheer chance, this robber came upon the monk's house, not knowing it was the young man's as well, and begged for food at the door, and was invited in for dinner. Smoke rose from the chimney as they shared a meal from the monk's garden. Steam rose too from the young man's wounds, and from his mouth as he focused on his breathing as his mother had taught him. Then it stopped. He became a wash, a stream run to ground, running red, running backwards. As when any young person dies, he became a delta. Something had been split and now things would take a different course. Two streams flowing together became two apart, never to converge again until both reached the sea. 
the monk found her child at sunrise. She followed crisp tracks in the snow upstream from her doorstep to where her son had been killed. After some untracked length of time, she washed his body in the stream, dug a grave behind their home, and laid him to rest with a simple prayer. Then she packed food, water, and other things in a cloth, dressed herself warmly, shuttered the windows, and traveled to the nearest village to ask about the desperate man. It didn't take long to find him. He was a drunken boaster, doing odd jobs in the very same village and sleeping in hay behind his stables. The monk found him there, insensible, and tied his hands and feet together. Then she slung him over a horse and, leaving money behind in exchange, rode them both to her home. The man awoke and cried for help, but by then they were far beyond the lights of the village. The monk tied the man to a kitchen chair set next to a small window that overlooked her child's grave. She gagged him so that he could not speak. When she unbound his mouth to feed him, he cursed her, threatened her, begged her, reasoned with her. He tried to use the only thing at his disposal to get free again. She never spoke to him at these times, or acknowledged his moaning. Once a day, the monk unbound his feet and walked him around the outside of the house on a long rope leash. Several times a day, she unbound his arms while his legs remained tied so that he could stretch. A few times a week, she sang to him, recited a parable, or told him a story. All of these were to prevent atrophy. Otherwise, the monk accepted her life as it came to her. Her heart still beat, but never again to the same rhythm. The hills budded. She gave in to grief, let the undertow consume her, and became only emotion, a throbbing wound. The hills bloomed. She screamed on her knees until she had no voice left. The hills browned. She lay on her side, staring at the wall, nothing in her mind but static. The hills frosted. She became delirious and set two places for dinner, spoke to a child that was no longer there, asked him about his day. The garden withered. The monk no longer grew tomatoes, but instead rode to the village to buy food. It didn't cost much, and she had the money. The desperate man who had killed her son beheld the shape of her loss for a full year. He listened to stories about the person whose life he had ended. He wore the young man's clothes. In time, his denial became guilt, and his guilt became genuine grief. The man found that he missed someone he'd never met. Tears fell silently down his face all day long. He moaned all night while nightmares took him, visions of eternal torment for what he had done or the look on the young man's face as the knife went in. Such a change certainly wouldn't occur in everyone, or by the same means, but it did to this person. That's what makes this story this story. And so, the man changed. Some would call it brainwashing, or learned helplessness, or Stockholm Syndrome. Perhaps it would be in real life. At the end of the story, the monk unties the man one morning, but he remains very still for a long time. Finally, he rises and finds the monk in the backyard digging a second grave next to the one where her son lay. Weeping, the man says, I understand. I accept your judgment, and if it will bring you peace, I will gladly lie in this hole and cut my belly open. You misunderstand, says the monk. The grave is for the part of you that killed my son. 
That part is dead now, if you wish it to be. Will you bury it with me? Together, they fill the hole in again with fresh soil, and the monk says a simple prayer over the grave of her child and over the grave of her enemy, whom she has destroyed utterly. Now please leave and never return here, says the monk. When I look at you, I can only see what you stole, and neither of us deserves that. The man leaves without another word, and spends the rest of his days helping people, or else falls into his old ways and kills another, or else unwinds completely and is lost in the stream. It doesn't matter to the monk. That's not the important part. because the metaphors that were in a pit. I recall the very first time, uh, it was on the cusp between fifth and sixth grade, that I became aware that instead of just spelling book homework, every night we were going to now have spelling and vocab homework, which is a whole separate red book instead of the blue book. And I clearly remember saying to my mom, this is probably going to (laughs) be the worst day of my life. Like today is probably... It's at least this is the nadir. I probably didn't use that word at the time of, of, you know, it can only go up from here. Anyway, now I'm 37. Welcome to Tales from the Pit. Um, uh, This episode is on the theme of worst day ever. Uh, I've had a very much worst day ever, which I might describe in a nutshell if it feels appropriate, but I'm not really here to talk about my worst day ever. but sort of like this resonated so hard with me that that's why I reached out to my good friend, Vanessa Guerrero. Vanessa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get, let's get into it. (laughs) Well, I'll do the standard, uh, you know, not caveat, but like, I think it needs to be said. Uh, it means a lot so much to me personally that my friends are willing to come on the show and talk about things that people normally not comedians as much, so I. but your average schmo might be embarrassed to talk about. Yeah. And uh, all I can say is every time we release one of these, I get a lot of feedback from listeners that it's really helpful um, to know that you're not in this alone. And especially when you happen to hear, you know, some segment of the people listening will be like, whoa, that's uncannily like my situation. It can really be helpful um, to make you not feel isolated. So thank you. Thank you on behalf of the listeners. Uh, and we're going to do this AA style, I think. Um, So that means like where you were, what you've been doing and how it's working out now. So where you were, uh, give us a story, man. Set the stage. What is what's been going on with you lately? Um, Where I was uh, in terms of where I was for the worst day ever. Um, I was at home. Uh, I we had just gotten back from arguing over sushi and hot dogs and uh my partner let me know that she didn't think that our marriage was sustainable um which i thought was a hard left turn for that um but clearly she'd been thinking about it for some time and then i had 
already been dealing pretty intensely with some ideation stuff and I had made like an attempt that I didn't tell anyone about. So when she told mm. me that, I proceeded to have the worst uh, disassociative episode of my entire life. Like just a complete and utter brain go shut down um, episode where I just, and I just, I just shattered. Yeah, go on. Uh, so it's my job to do this. <laughs> like, so, um, what is that like for you? Or, I mean, I'm just picking up what you're putting down as gently as I can, but like starting with the dissociation, um, cause I have my own episodes or, you know, anyone with mental challenges has like their expression. Um, what does dissociating feel like for you? Is it, or do you mean like an out of body experience in some sense? In some sense, um, I have pretty intense PTSD. And so mm -hmm. I went straight into like, I, I guess this is a fighter. It wasn't a fight or flight situation, but my body was like, I guess this is a fight or flight situation and I'm going to treat this like fight. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, it, <laughs> I don't know how better to put it than like, I, I basically felt like I was feral. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, uh, completely started reacting like this was a situation in which it was like fight or defend when which it wasn't mm. and uh then the issues that i'd been having with ideation just came to like a full head and i actually ended up making an attempt again so it was my second attempt in that week and um i and were you saying uh and you hadn't shared well, there had been an attempt, so I assume she knew. She didn't know that this was particularly bad timing, no. or she has she, she didn't, didn't have a way of knowing. She that didn't have a way of knowing because I yeah, made an attempt. Yeah, that's just fucking. I mean, that's what makes it the worst day ever. But terrible timing, terrible. Luck, Absolute yeah. terrible timing and terrible luck. She, she didn't know, and I didn't tell anyone, and I hadn't planned. I planned to tell anyone because it was mm -hmm. just the first initial attempt was literally just like call of the void. I didn't really like plan on it. I, it wasn't mm -hmm. something that I was setting out to do. It was more like I was an opportunity had like presented itself that day. And I like found myself just meeting that opportunity. And then at the last second being like, Oh, what am I doing? And it had mm -hmm. frightened me so much so that I was like, maybe if I don't tell anyone, then this never really happened, which is we'll slide back to we'll, normal. Now we'll just be like a weird thing. That exactly. Happened. Like yeah. I'll backslide back into whatever normal looks like. And that'll just be like a weird thing that happened. And then, uh, I obviously was behaving very irrationally that entire weekend, um, because I had just made an attempt, but she couldn't have known. Um, she just saw irrational behavior and, uh, broke up with me and I lost my mind. Um, yeah. And I made uh, another attempt that time, and uh, I proceeded to uh, self-harm. Um, and it was absolutely the worst goddamn day of my entire life, uh, without question, um, because yeah. we, she and I had a very much built a life together. And I also realized how much, I don't want to say pretending because that's wrong to say that she was pretending. I don't know what her mindset was, but how much it 
I realized she had been going along with some plans that we had together um, because I had no idea. It was completely out of left field how much we weren't seeing things the same way. Like you had no idea you were even close to that. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. We were even close to that point. I had no idea that she changed her mind about kids. I had, I had absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea. And that was jarring on its own because she'd always seemed very honest and communicative. If anything, it felt like there were certain things and especially like things about herself that she was like maybe playing close to the chest. I didn't know that that was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're hung over right now. I'm right? currently hung over. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. Good. That's per. I just want the audience to know. Cause I think we said that. It's important like, that um, everybody knows that I'm currently hung over and nursing a bottle of water. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and we're not, here obviously to dish on them but just to resonate a little bit uh and and you know i don't hope this is helpful don't know if it will be but uh because every situation is unique right and you may get to a place where you're grateful for the relationship or um don't think about the relationship or glad at any you know anything in between um but i definitely on the day i realized my first marriage was falling apart said like you're killing our children, our future children and stuff and self-harmed and all this stuff. And, um, now I'm so glad not to be, not only so glad not to be in the marriage, but also never think about it ever. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I, th- I remember it and go, Oh, that's weird, man. Glad I got out of there. And there was a lot of pretending involved. So not to compare and say our situations are the same, but you know, their humans have patterns and there's a lot of us, so we do iterate on the things that happen to us. Um, to so I know I phrased it as worst day ever, but <laughs> all right, we're gonna get to like the healing part, you guys. We we'll really will. But um, we got to synopsize. So I also want to bring up. You also lost your job. I lost right? my job Around at the same time. time. Oh, and I have to say in the same breath, I notoriously I like laugh when things are bleak and dark so So i'm not laughing at your pain (laughs) yeah i'm like laughing about like oh life is hard you just gotta laugh okay so what happened with that yeah and how close were those events um within two weeks of each other um okay so we we break up i absolutely lose my mind um and in terms of like where i am i'm still in the place of like i wish it never happened and i wish we were still together but that's maybe part of the dumpy um and and that be, might be the truth of your journey or like i'm not here to say it absolutely is um because it was great while it was there but i just mm. clearly there are a lot of things that i didn't understand and uh right after the breakup and then trying to figure out jesus we just bought a house how am i <laughs> how am i going to maintain this on my own um within two weeks i lost like not only like the dream job i was working for but the dream job that it also like turned into a little bit of ash in my mouth which definitely didn't help with like Mm. some of the mental health stuff leading up to it because like it was a schedule that was like killing me um i i wasn't sleeping enough and it was absolutely causing me to disassociate like every other day um and 
I couldn't breathe wrong without some, like, alt-right weirdo on the internet talking about how the woke left is ruining their gaming media. And so I was also wow. getting people, yeah. like, that had gotten my phone number saying weird shit to me. Um, and so mm -hmm. it was, like, it was such a bittersweet ending where it was, like, I love this job and I poured my heart and soul into it, but also, like, several elements of it are fucking killing me. Um, and now I have a house. But that didn't mean I wanted it to dissolve per yeah, se. Yeah, I didn't want it to yeah. dissolve like this. It was a very complicated situation. Um, and so all of that combined with the fact that what am I going to do with a mortgage on my own? And then I just lose my job. Yeah. Um, and I just put all of the money that I was going to spend into taking my wife and I on an anniversary trip because all of this happened right around our anniversary. Uh, mm -hmm. I had to take all of that anniversary money and put it into, I have to check myself into a mental health facility money. Yeah. Um, super glad that you're <clears throat> doing that or like getting that trip. Well, I hope it works. It works. <laughs> it works really I well. super, I super want to encourage people, of course, to seek help and counseling and therapy and mood meds if that's appropriate for the situation. But I also want people to be aware, um, and I don't, if you're in a state of despair, I hope, or like, I really don't want this to keep you in that state of despair, but like, there is a journey to it, right? Not every therapist is good. No. Mood meds sometimes don't work and you have to try several. Um, and it can be along. And especially, I mean, we're coming to you from America, land of the fucked healthcare system. That includes mental health care. Yeah. It is hard to like navigate the system and get it done. It's expensive um, and but hard help to find. exists. And if you're down for the journey and in times, like if you're like me and I, we are uncannily, I'm sorry, leading parallel lives in a weird way, only in the sense that um, at Cracked, I always thought, you know, we'd say, oh, everyone's a heckler. And now with the internet, these kids are even meaner because it's anonymous and it detaches you, blah, blah, blah. And then I worked for IGN. So like around the same time, you and I both moved into like the gaming yeah. sector and I ain't seen, I had not seen nothing. Gamers are fucking toxic and vile. Like gamers are the scum it's of the earth. Poison. The ones who are like it's that. Are and if you're not that. like that, I'm not talking no. about you. You know what if, I mean? If I didn't call for you, don't come. <laughs> I'm not talking about you if this right. ain't you, but if this is you, oh my God. <laughs> you're a piece you're of shit. shit. <laughs> it was unlike anything that I dealt with in my entire life. Like I'm literally dealing with feelings of like ideation. My wife just left me. I my job has ended, and I'm getting text messages to my phone number that's just like "kill yourself, you fat cow." And so I was like, I we had to hire a security guard whose only job was to escort like our beautiful on camera host woman f to their Jesus. car and back. But also that yeah. makes sense. Because yeah. I well, because there there are people constantly writing in saying no, no, no. I'm gonna find you. Here's your address. I this is actionable, and like, and they probably actually aren't going to do that, but they know that's scarier. And legally speaking, once they say that, like the company has to take steps because they have your address and shit. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, well, yeah. I I had okay. To, too much of a tangent though. No, Go I ahead, appreciate please. it. I had to. I had to therapist shop around that time because also a lot of therapists were like, yeah. I don't really know what to do with the doxing. Um, and cause mm -hmm. I was like, how do, how do we take the, like the cyberbullying element of this and do it? Um, and, uh, I actually at one point called the suicide hotline 
in between looking mm-hmm. for therapists because uh, I also got rejected by a few that were like, uh, you should definitely be checked in somewhere, but maybe like things are a little bit too intense for us to start one-on-one. So it like took me a while. Just like talk. Therapy. Yeah. Like took yeah. me a while to find a talk therapist that was like willing to take my case on. Um, so I called the suicide hotline in between just to like have someone to talk to, to like hold me over, over like a particularly bad day in all of this. And, uh, I was describing the situation with like my marriage. And then I was describing the situation with my job. And then I was describing the unique situations that were happening with my job. And the hotline worker was like, Oh, I think I know where you work. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I was like, this is the last thing Big I want to hear. By the this way. is the also, absolute last yeah. goddamn thing I want to hear. Uh, don't kill yourself big fan by the yeah, way don't kill yourself. big <laughs> fan of your work and i was like all right thank you but um i would have loved it if you just pretended not to know um uh that's what i mean about bad counselors though or not that that was bad but uh we had a couples counselor who was in uh beverly hills or whatever and would constantly go like you know i treated tom waits today and we're like i don't think you're supposed to you're not supposed that. to say it <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's super weird yeah. oh my god that's so funny get help tom waits <laughs> we were rooting for you man i'm, I'm happy for you tom waits. well yeah so you said it did work so let's move into the i feel like we've already naturally kind of gone there but the what you did about it phase um so there's a lot of different uh, I actually didn't mean to announce this on this episode, and I don't really know when it will come out, but I'll do a separate episode digging into the details. But it's just so weirdly samey that it has to be mentioned. Um, I was also on Suicide Watch recently, and they were hiding the knives and stuff and having psych checks every day and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I'm also um, going to lose some money right now in a similar fashion to go be in a nice place and talk to some kind people. Um not for particular reasons, like I didn't have a story like you, but just a multitude of factors, yeah. uh, similar stuff. And I bring it up only because I, I really want to compare my experience to yours, but I was shocked about this. Uh, I told people in my life, you know, the human beings I know, like, oh, I'm in nervous breakdown, like suicidal, obsessive thoughts of like stuff rotting and like you should kill yourself yeah. and shit point. Um, I can't control my own actions or like and something needs to be done. And I always really imagine that it was like in a show where you do that and they're like, please, sir, this way. And you go to a hospital immediately and they're like, you've been 5150. Now everyone's going to take care of you slash leave you alone or like you can have some quiet time or whatever you need. Dude, I have encountered, if anything, extra paperwork and hoops to jump through to prove that I'm crazy yes. enough to go to this place. And there's a waiting list. They're like, well, hold, hang on for like two to three weeks and we'll get you in here. And I'm like, you do this to people who are like, I'm on the verge of killing myself. And they're like, unfortunately, there's a lot of you fucks. So, yeah, there's like a list. So, you know, you can't get in right away. You can't just walk in. Um, so what's your experience been like? I definitely had a similar experience in that I was like, hey, I've like tried several times. Uh, I've tried several times and I've like... Um, just gonna give like a slightly gonna give a little bit of a trigger warning to anybody listening i've tried several times and like my methods are also getting like more and more intense um 
and mm. more like aggressive and harmful and clearly like something's escalating and I like cannot control my actions and uh they were like yeah well <laughs> there's still a waiting list for these things and it is harder to get into than like a fancy reservation for some hot new restaurant except in this right. case it's just like a bed where I can like go and talk about childhood trauma to try and survive another couple months. And yeah. so I basically had to like stack up every single kind of like auxiliary support I could just to get me uh like get me by until I was able to check into one of these facilities. I went to like every open support group that there was. Um mm -hmm. like it, I I looked up every support group in my area for like Trauma, grief, uh, self-harm, you name it. and uh, You're like sex addicts and anonymous, and you're like, I just want to talk. I just need I just someone need to talk to. I just need someone to talk yeah. to me. I went to like every support group that I could possibly go to. Um, every hotline you could think of, I called it. Um, and then because I've been 5150 before, and it didn't go as well for me, and I wanted to have like a little bit of autonomy in the situation... I basically put myself on like friends and family watch and uh, I would have uh, either my mom, my mom primarily or like friends come to like relieve her of their time to like stay with me. Um, and uh, yeah. some of them would like give me the privacy to like, just like quietly cry in my room while they were like in the next room. Some of them were like, let's go door open. Rifling through your shit. Um, and I <laughs> rifling through my shit. And I'd have to explain the nature of you being here means I'm not going to try right now. Um, <laughs> I, uh, mm -hmm. like obviously my like previous attempts were like a little bit more public. Um, but I'm, I was, I was in a place at that point where I was like, if you're here, I'm not going to try, uh, just, just cause I'm like, I'm not saying I'm sane, but I'm like a little bit more stable than my complete and utter disassociation at this point, uh, to yeah. not want to like have a witness. Um, and it took me like, your thoughts are bigger when you're alone, which is why it's a super good advice to, as soon as you feel able have some kind of connection so with another human being but man you don't feel like it at the oh moment. my god i know <laughs> it's like so hard to force yourself it, i had a friend who god bless her she kept trying to like talk to me and i didn't have mm -hmm. talking energy <laughs> at all and yeah. she very much wanted me to talk through it and i don't know how to advocate for myself sometimes when I'm that way and I didn't know how to say like hey I don't mm -hmm. have talking energy I'm using up like a lot of mental energy that I'm basically using to like maintain and not harm myself into like maintaining this conversation and yeah. so without realizing it she kind of talked me into a panic attack and I was sitting on the floor and I was like, just get me ice, please just get me ice, uh, that I would like rub on my neck to try and like keep myself present. Um, and it was around that point that I was like, I have to figure out how to say, I, I can't do this right now. I can't, I can't function in the way that you're hoping that I function right now. I can't even like a pep talk is debilitating to me right now. Um, 
and there was definitely like an element of like trial by fire uh because i you could just text i love you and you're like it's good to verify it might be a lifeline that i know that someone loves me but like i don't have i can't answer any questions don't yeah (laughs) sorry i'm going through this right now and yeah i'll have phone calls where towards the end i feel like i'm drowning and the second i and i don't tell them and then the second I hang up, I scream and fall to the floor. And I know that, and they were literally calling to check up on me because they know I'm having yeah. a rough time. So they want my better outcome. But I'm like, I don't, I don't know. This is why this podcast is important. I'm like, I don't, I don't want my best friend of 30 years to know that I'm crazy or whatever. He knows. Like, who cares? I don't know. Yeah. So I go through the totally, dude, where I'm like, why am I masking up so hard for this person? But also, I wish they would just occasionally text, like, rooting for you and then not need anything else from yeah, me. Yeah, not need some other confirmation yeah. that, like, because I can tell. I can tell the thing that is happening is that they also, they love me, so they need to know that I'm okay. And I won't always be able to give them that answer in the ways that they want me to give it to them. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that answer is just me nodding while curled up in a ball, and that's all you're going to be able to really get from me at that point. Or I'll say, like, I'm safe. That's like, yeah. yeah, I'm in a range where, yeah, it's okay. You could leave me alone, but I'm not like feeling good, but that's not even the goal at this point. We're not even mustered to that level. Were you, are you honest with people at work? Like in the two week interim, because I also have the problem where when it got real bad, people at work would do the stupid fucking thing that we all do and answer every, start every meeting by going, how you doing? And I'd go like, Good. <laughs> I go like, are you about to cry? And I go like, well, you asked me how I'm doing, so I feel like I gotta say, like, not good, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? But and I can't. There was a point where if you have like eight hours of meetings and you're still expected to maintain, you actually can't. You will reach a point where people notice that you're acting yeah. weird, right? Or how did that go for you? It definitely noticed towards the end at work. My boss did. And my boss at G4, uh, my, like, direct supervisor, was maybe one of the most, like, mentally empathetic dudes to this kind of thing. Uh, His wife works in mental health. So he was, like, Mm -hmm. very good at being, like, what Vanessa needs is for all of us to fuck off right now. And uh, would do, like, private check-ins. And very much, like, Mm -hmm. I could be honest with him about what was happening to me. And he would play close to the vest and like choose like be not choose to share it with anyone and I can I can he was very much like an advocate for me and then after G4 I (laughs) so I was interviewing for my new job over at Game Grumps and they were like where do you see yourself in five years and in the middle of the interview I just started laughing and I was like I don't know um, I can't. You don't want the answer I, to that. I was like, question. I don't know how to answer where I see myself in five years because um, I'm going through a lot of flux right now, and I don't even know what that looks like. And I'm the thing that I'm struggling with is that I'm constantly, and this is the answer I gave them. I was like, I'm constantly either living in the past or like in the what ifs of the future, and I'm not. I'm not maintaining a sense of like presence. And so I don't know how to answer that question because I'm just learning how to like be here in the here and now. And I still got that job. Um, (laughs) But I was like, I, 
I, I think this isn't going to be like the answer that you like want to hear. I don't really know where I'm going to be in the five years, but I know what I want to be doing right now in this moment. Yeah. And it, and it's this job, hopefully, please. And, it's this thing. <laughs> and you nailed it. And that, that worked. So everyone, please try that. No, except that, except if you're trying to hospitalize yourself, because then you can't say, uh, it's funny. Cause like, uh, you know, people do experience empathy and social pressure, most people. So if you're like at the DMV or anywhere, anywhere, like, um, a bakery and you cry and it's genuine, or like they can see that you're breaking down. People will often make exceptions and be like, you're clearly having a hard day. Like take the cookie or whatever. Oh, yeah, I've done a lot of public But man, crying. you cannot go to the mental health people and say, I'm really desperate. And they go, yeah, that's the baseline of everyone we ever interact yeah. with. So it doesn't really face me or like, yeah, you just go on the list. Um, uh, I curse under my breath there only because, uh, uh, and I wonder if other people in the audience are having this experience, but I don't know, more than any other episode I've done before, uh, I not to appropriate your experience, but we're just like the same person. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's weird. It's becoming bizarre. Uh, I'm going through like the same thing right now, and all your thoughts are exactly the same as mine. And that's just very interesting to me because <laughs> um, I'd call you like a good friend or a person I really, really love and love talking yeah, to, but um, not a best friend where we're like not routinely in each other's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and we're just going through a very similar turbulence. Um, so where I was at is my partner is, you know, works in mental welfare and social welfare and like, is like a licensed clinical social worker and knows very intimately what 5150ing is like and describe, and there's totally, and I got to say, um, said it totally has its uses or there's times where it would be the right decision or applicable. But we ended up just putting me on family watch and then getting to a place where, like, I can check myself into this place. And now I'm in limbo where I'm waiting for a slot to open up. But it sounds like you actually have received services, right? Yeah. At this point? Um, I got okay. intensive. Tell us about that. I got intensive yeah. outpatient. I got a DBT, um, like a DBT program. Um, and then uh, I actually got to, like, be in an intake facility for a little bit and um all of it was immensely helpful at I definitely was like a little bit resistant to it at the beginning because certain things um can feel very like oversimplified like oh talking about your feelings or like making a list of what you're gonna do tomorrow um but what I didn't realize was after a break that big you need someone to walk you through things like making a list that says things like drink juice, have water, eat cereal, <laughs> read two pages of book, text one friend. Be gay, do be crime, gay, do all crime. the good stuff. Yeah. Um, the basics that you need to the do. The basics that you need to do. Like it, it was, it was <laughs> a lot of like them just trying to get me at like the most basic, basic baseline of functioning again. Um, and so at first I had like this initial frustration of like, it feels like you're teaching me how to just be a human. Like we're not even doing like any of like that trauma processing stuff. You're just like reteaching me how to be human. And it's because the maintaining part is exhausting and like the little things that were falling behind were just making me feel worse. Like not being able to wash my fucking hair, um, because mm. I was too emotionally exhausted to even get like a brush through my hair. So like, yeah, 
once we like got basic life skills back into rotation back on track back yeah. on track that's when we were like all right now we can start working on some of this trauma processing now we can start working on some of like the fact the fact that like shame is your constant passenger um and like actually have these intense one-on-one sessions that were like immensely helpful and then i started doing emdr while i was in treatment um i was about to ask i'm excited for that one so if i sorry just real quick for people who aren't in the know um iop intensive outpatient program they'll usually offer a variety of and this is one of the things you would research if you were selecting one uh different kinds of therapy and there's so many different kinds of therapy and they do apply in different ways and you sort of have to pick the ones that you think or with guidance that will be effective to you um we mentioned dbt that's dialectical behavior therapy um which is i believe uh generally for people who have overwhelmingly strong emotions yeah. that sort of make them which dissociate is definitely my and, jam. and lose control me too just just like a, it's like a surging tide and i reach a point where i go oh the motion's in control now my body's just gonna do whatever yeah. it does and i'm just watching the feeling is now um, factual yeah <laughs> yeah um and then uh, emdr which i'd love vanessa to explain because it's really dope so emdr um it, it was definitely something that like <clears throat> was recommended to me when i was going into it it's eye movement deep it's eye movement desensitization rapid therapy Ramp. processing reprocessing therapy um and based that's right i didn't mean to put you on the spot on the acronym sorry i just meant what yeah what's it it's like <laughs> specifically to help you process like traumatic memories and it involves like moving your eyes in specific ways as they like work you through reprocessing like traumatic or intense uh experiences that might have happened to you um it it very much treats your brain like it's like an organ and it wants to like make that organ do work um and it was something that i didn't realize how much it was going to be that because like i had a lot of triggers but i and i knew what my triggers were i just didn't know how to like work around them um it 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 was helpful to know like what could trigger like an episode or a flashback um at this like improper memory storage in my brain was causing but emdr kind of helps repair essentially like the mental injury from from memory um it sucks those thetans right out i will (laughs) i will it sounds uh it's one that makes me seem or you know I feel suspicious about it, just like real medicine Same. to the human body. I truly believe this. Um, we're not at the end of discovering, right? Like a hundred years from now, some of these techniques will probably turn out to be bullshit and some will be effective to whatever degree. So EMDR, I'm super like wary of, except that my partner who I trust so much with this stuff uses it and really thinks it works and believes in the science and has read much more about it than I ever will. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's I had like a suspicion you flip too. your eyes in directions. Yeah, <laughs> well, they talked to you. I had intense suspicions about it because I was like, this feels uh, like I'm seeing like a circus hypnotist um, mm-hmm. who's just like, and then what happened when you were a child? Uh, and I, I was also like a little bit resistant to it in the beginning. And 
similar to that thing where I'm like trying to like maintain in the present, maintain in the here and now, um, I have a tendency to respond to things, especially like with men. Um, I have a tendency to respond like I'm experiencing something that happened several years ago. Um, and so it could just be like a normal dude that's asking me what the time is, but my brain is like, you're hurting, you're here to hurt me, you're gonna hurt me, and I'm gonna behave as if you're going to hurt me. Um, and mm -hmm. EMDR kind of helped me process things and be like no you're just a guy on the street asking me what time it is that's where we are that's where the here and now is and and repair those like connections that my brain is constantly trying to make with trauma and what is currently happening in the here and now yeah yeah it's it's habit it's mental habits for sure it's like uh just because two to five core people in your life were very X. You can't let your brain just be lazy and assume everyone is very X yeah. <laughs> or like whatever it may be that scares you or, or affects your mental well-being. Yeah. Um, but I totally do the same thing. And I, and it's, that's my greatest fear about as someone who hasn't begun uh, any kind of program yet, but is like shopping around and trying to get in is uh, I'm, if anything, over therapized and I only or like I introspect constantly like like you said I'm never present yeah. I'm almost always in my head in an abstract world of pure thought um which is something I don't like because it feels like my whole life will rush by and I'll realize as I'm dying oh I didn't uh I just watched it like a movie I never did anything yeah or I didn't even feel it really um, I worry about that a lot. And I, and I super worry that this will just be more of, uh, it sounds like it wasn't for you and gosh, that's what I want to hear about next, but I'm super worried that I'll go to it and it'll just be six weeks of like rest, which is good. But this kind of thing seems to happen with me every three to five years in like a cycle. And I, we're looking at like getting married and having kids soon. This I really want to kind of change the cycle this time or break it if I can or at least alter it. And I'm worried that I'm just going to go and it's just going to be nice and relaxing and the cycle will start over and I won't learn anything new. Because there's also that thing where it's like the first step is understanding and intellectualizing. But I'm hearing from you and I completely agree. You can have it fully figured out and intellectualized like, oh, I know what my triggers are and I can tell a new therapist, look, I have these problems because this happened to me and this is what my coping mechanisms are and they're unhealthy and they cause these symptoms. But I can't stop <laughs> like I can't. It's just not in my bones still. It's it doesn't matter how long I think about yeah. it. I have to somehow practice the skills and so far haven't figured out how to do that effectively. So did that. Yeah, like, I mean, you can't give us the benefit of the therapy, but would you vouch for the process? Or like, I'm sure there's good ones and bad ones, but, like, how do you find yourself on the other end of it? Where are you now? On the other end of it, I absolutely vouch for it. I think I I also have a tendency to, like, especially whenever I enter treatment, be like, what if this is just, like, a nice time where I talk to a nice lady um, and then I continue living my life like this because I... I, I can't even approach something that's potentially helpful for me without thinking about what if it isn't? What if uh, I'm mm -hmm. I'm back to uh, 
being so in my goddamn head that I just wake up and ask myself, how did I even get home from work the day before? Um, mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, uh, it's... I'll say this. So the other day I saw a friend that hadn't seen me since last year. And I can tell that he had been completely aware that it was entirely possible that he could have lost me several times last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I haven't been this present in a while, but he hugged me and he hugged me that kind of like really tight way that you hug someone when you're like afraid that they're going to float away somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And the sun was on my face. He was hugging me and I was feeling those things happening in real time. And I realized that pre all of this treatment, I would have floated past that. It would have just, Mm. I, I wouldn't have been in that moment feeling the warmth of the sun on my face and a really tight hug and actually being there in the moment to feel those things. Um, I would have completely gone somewhere else. I would have gone to, oh my God, I can't believe I scared him like that. Or um, I, I, my brain would have gone in a million different directions. I might have not even let him touch me because he's a man and he's mm-hmm. touching me. Um, yeah. And the fact that I was able to just enjoy a loving hug from someone that was happy that I was alive um, was absolutely the thing that made it all worth it. It's incredible to me that there are people who it's reversed for. Like they feel that way most of the time. (laughs) And then they only occasionally feel like we do. Those bastards. Lucky, uh, lucky bastards. I will say, I will say there's something about, or you know, the thirster you're, you are the better water taste. And I'm not saying that you should seek out suffering, but, uh, I know exactly what you mean. And I can't overstate how powerful it is. If you haven't been present for a very long time, like potentially years or months, and you have a fleeting moment of presence, like I've had that recently. And I thought I was having an acid flashback <laughs> and I'm just looking at the sunlight on a tree. Yeah but I'm actually looking at it and I haven't done that in six months. And you're like, sunlight is crazy. It's like energy vibrating (laughs) into my eyeballs. The universe is a miracle. Um, And it's just weird that, you know, the human brain works in such a way that six hours later you can be like, actually I'm sad and I'm so sad that I'm sure that I'll always be this sad. And it would be a reasonable thing to kill myself because I'm not mad at anyone. It's just like, I'm just, you know, I can't handle this amount of suffering. I'm like a terminal patient, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but six hours ago, you were so happy you thought you were on acid. And you're like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what a mood disorder is. But That's what brain does. (laughs) Yeah, that's what brain chemical. Um, But those moments are, and you know, I guess you try to build on those moments. I've, I've now, my phone tells me that I've just completed my like 1500th, minute of meditation and my hundredth straight day of meditating every day without a break. And I still feel nothing. (laughs) (laughs) My moments of being present are still quite, quite rare. Same. Um, And I have big stickers all over my house that say breathe. And I wear a bracelet that's supposed to remind me to be present. And I just seem to not notice them. (laughs) But uh, I have 
but cool. Like, like I'm glad. <laughs> That's why it's so, so important to hear. And life is complex and there's many layers to it. So like I recently had the privilege of, you know, over Twitter, just long messages, but like being able to be there for someone on a alcoholism journey and say like, I was you, the person sitting in the first AA meeting thinking, whatever they say, I'm a write-off. I cannot go a day without drinking. That's just a fact of life and it's just something I accept and whatever they say, that just doesn't apply to me. Um, and listening to someone say, my life is way better now that I'm sober and go, well, they're just deluding themselves. <laughs> like that can't be true, but good for them or whatever, but that's not me. And now I'm the guy who's five years sober and I never think about alcohol. And when I do think about it, I actively think like, yeah, man, if I drank, poof, that would make stuff even harder. Imagine if I was drunk, shit would be even harder. So like I got to the end of the journey and now I'm the other person. And, um, so I'm really appreciative appreciative that you can say from your place in the journey that IOP like had some appreciable effect on you. That's a real light at the end of the tunnel for me. So thank you for that. Of course. Um, did you encounter any parts work? That's the other one I'm interested in. The new one I'm interested any in. Any what? That's where bec- parts work because this really resonates with me. That's the one that's based on the idea that your brain is like, you know, a play with like eight different sort of recurring characters that tend to speak like you have like a few voices you can differentiate that are pretty consistent and I definitely have that and they'll do things like well now I just want to talk to that part so like let yourself be your self-loathing part like um the stuff that loops in your head say it out loud now I want to talk to that part of you and work with that I do that with my therapist on a one-on-one that's interesting to me yeah um and we kind of personify these different parts and and give them names and faces and she'll ask me like well what does this part of your brain feel or like what input do they have on this situation um yeah and then uh additionally it'll be like she'll have like a nurturing figure a protective figure like uh something that I can like refer back to, to like get these parts to talk to each other where it's like, well, what would your nurturing Mm -hmm. figure say to like this part of your brain? Um, and it was interesting when we were like figuring out what like (laughs) these different things are. Cause like my protective figure, I was like, all right, well that's like a version of my older brother. Cause he's always been like the most like, he's always like protected me from harm i i love my parents but he's like done a better job of that than yeah you cast the roles yeah Yeah. jen's protective is gandalf which i oh that's so cute cute. my um (laughs) my uh nurturing figure and my wisdom figure are the same one and it's marmy from little women (laughs) amazing yeah (laughs) I would think about that so long and that's such a fun assignment. I want to do parts work. So they'll say, okay, now cast your self-loathing voice. And I'm like, maybe John Malkovich. He's kind of an asshole. <laughs> like, I love casting shit. Casting stuff. My is self-loathing fun. voice is Will Arnett. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I could it see that. It makes it more like sure. tolerable. Ah, uh, Oh, you're saying you cast it in a way that you feel is helpful to yeah. you. Yeah. I was trying to cast it as in the way that would be the most painful. Right. Like maybe Roseanne Barr would be a really horrible one to constantly hear parading you. I don't know. All right. Well, that's cool. <laughs> it's. <laughs> I remember when I was initially starting the work and I was like, mindfulness means I have to be present for everything all the fucking time. This sounds fucking horrible. 
Um, and every once in a while, I'm still there where it's like, uh, the wind is blowing. There's a butterfly. I'm fucking angry. Um, yeah. But at the same time, if I could, if I, if I could get that sweet, sweet juice that I felt of being briefly present mm-hmm. again, I'm. It, it was. It stuck out to me because of how rare it felt. But if I could get that again, I'm gonna keep doing it. Right. I will. I'm working at it hard. Like I'm now taking time off work, doing, you know, trying to start a program, meditating every day, doing strenuous exercise, which is supposed to help with it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm up to like one or two moments of mine of being present a week, man, if I could get that up to like a minute a day, I feel like it would be so nurturing. (laughs) Like it would revitalize my resilient, like fuel, my resiliency fuel. Um, but yeah, I'm up to like, you know, eight seconds a week or something (laughs) with a lot of effort. over three months. Um, so, you know, don't get discouraged out there. It's a long road, but it's a road we're taking. Like I, I do think the fact that humans think too much and that we accidentally think that our brain that thinks so much is us, um, is a big mistake that the human brain falls into almost universally. And the fact that if you work at it and try to not do that and just rest in a state of present awareness, life becomes very rich and that's a pretty rewarding thing to do and work on that wisdom as being like one of the truths of life every culture slash religion slash philosophy eventually arrives at that like that is what the power of now says but it's also what buddhism says but it's also what kurt vonnegut says in like his little witticisms but like also you know sun tzu said it in this like being present i cannot overstate the younger for the younger listeners out there who might be like, that's just one of the truest things that there is in life. Like everyone agrees. That's a good thing to try to do. It's very helpful. Work at that from a young age and with diligence, if you can. Um, Do you get the thing where, because my therapist will also ask me to do my nurturing voice. What would your nurturing voice say out loud or like say something kind self talk? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I cry every time, dude. Every time. I, like, immediately, like, I mean, I guess it's saying that, like, you do have a lot of friends, and clearly they love you, even if you don't feel it, like, what, you know? <laughs> it's like, immediately that voice, just, but then the self-loathing voice, I'm very comfortable just speaking as, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, well, I'm a huge piece of shit, you see. Like, I don't know, that voice is just very confident. That voice is very confident taking and center loud. stage. Yeah. That voice yeah. always knows what it wants to say to me because that's it's that's been my constant co-pilot. Um, mm-hmm. like I know what nurturing says, I know what wisdom says, I know what they all have to say. Uh, the one that tells me I'm a piece of shit is just much louder. It sits in the front seat. Yeah. Shame that I have intellectualized that I don't deserve but still feel like I deserve as my co-pilot would make a good bumper sticker. Uh, Let's put that all the way down the back of my Hyundai Sonata. (laughs) Yeah, or one of those giant shirts that normally say, like, my dad believes in the Second Amendment and I'm his little princess, you know, those shirts? Yeah, or I'm a dumb little piece of shit that ruins everything I touch, like King Midas. (laughs) Oh, dude. Okay, now I want actual... Like self-loathing word-for-word inner monologues because they're objectively silly. Oh, they're or you know, so- not when you're in your right state of mind, you're like they're not grounded in reality. No, no one's that much of a piece of shit. But um, that on a shirt would, in that style of those like God Bless America shirts, would be very funny to me. Like, um, 
I will drink myself to death. And no matter how much I try, drive everyone away. You know, like different size fonts and shit. I am destined to live in an afterlife where I am a gray speck of nothing, feeling only loneliness for eternity. Honk if you're going to be trapped 6th. in a covered room. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Honk if you know you will die an insensible, unhoused person, <laughs> no matter what else you try. Okay, now I'm just spiraling so let's <laughs> call it there um, i'm like saying this would make a funny shirt but also is true of me oh no i'm starting to cry while hosting the podcast um appropriate for the pit thank you so much vanessa uh i just can't you know i hope well if someone wants to reach out and say, hey, your pod, that episode really helped me. Thank you so much. Where would they find you? They can find me on Twitter uh, under NESS Guerrero, mm. SNES Guerrero on Instagram. Um, I forgot both these handles while drunk at a bar last night. Um, just completely forgot. It was nice to be so mentally logged off that yeah. I forgot. Um, and then I produce a show called 10 minute power hour. That's out every other Monday on the channel, the grumps. And then I have a new podcast coming out February 4th called popcorn and pixels, where we talk about, uh, similar stories told versus a ludo narrative story versus a linear story and how a video game versus a movie might like handle telling a certain kind of story. Um, I'm hosting that with, uh, Emily Rose Jacobson, who I worked with over at G4 and I'm really excited about it. Wow. So listeners just take that as I think total proof that, you know, Vanessa is an incredible, brilliant content creator as well. Uh, people around you that are kicking ass might be going home and having a very dark, unfortunate time. Yeah. And so if you're doing that and still masking up and acting fine and no one knows that you feel so alone, uh, just know that you're not alone in your aloneness. Uh, a lot of people who seem like they're fine are not fine. And um, for the people who are totally not fine at right at this moment, um, I just want to say that everything changes. Like, And that's the greatest trick that my mind pulls is tells me, oh, no, this depression is the one you'll ride to your grave. And that's the biggest lie that uh, everything changes. Things will it will get better again and it will get worse again. And that's that's just how it goes. <laughs> everything just changes. Yeah. Uh, that's about it. I don't like to really plug stuff on this podcast, so I think we'll just stop there. Um, but Vanessa, you know, I love, I you. love you. The listeners are rooting for you and uh and your best possible outcomes and i'm so glad that you have a support network and that you're taking the time to do what you need to do mental health wise and i hope you listeners are doing that as well all right i'm now pressing the button and the elevator that takes us out of the pit to ground level where we're supposed to pretend that we're fine <laughs> for everyone else's comfort uh, got a staple uh, on that smile <laughs> that's right all right slap on those smiles we're out